Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And right at the top of this episode, we want to just hit three quick things. First of all, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, etc. And, uh, you know, it's currently for the uh, the month of October. We're going to have it front-loaded with a lot of cool Halloween content. And along uh, those those lines, uh, we have a new season of Monster Science coming out. Four new episodes looking at the connections between fictional monsters and real-world science. So there's one about werewolves. There's one about Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, hopefully a lot of great stuff in there. I think you'll all enjoy it. What, and yes. Hold on. you got to tell me, what's the science of David Lopin? Oh, well, it's not so much David Lopin as uh, one of his minions. Oh, okay. Yeah. A uh, very explosive minion, uh, just to give you a hint. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Dr. Anton Jessup will look into that and, and draw some uh, interesting comparisons between that and something in the natural world. And finally, periscoping. Uh, stuff to blow your mind. Me, Joe, Christian, we will be on the periscope October the 23rd, uh, attending to our buildup of listener mail, which is, has built up under the sands like a, like a, like a pre-spice mass, just ready to blow to the surface. Yeah. So, uh, again, October 23rd on that, stuff to blow your mind.com. And now let's move on with today's episode. So, it's October. Our favorite month. It's my favorite month. I assume it's yours. It is. Okay. Yeah, I often get into trouble by placing, I think, too much emphasis on it. Like, I, I build it up all year, and then when it comes, I kind of forget that, yes, there's extra cool stuff, and the, the weather's hopefully getting a little cooler, uh, and there's Halloween. Uh, but on the other hand, all the other stuff in life is still happening and uh, and isn't going to you know make it this just idyllic uh, kind of scenario. Uh, in our house, we treat Halloween the way malls treat Christmas, mm-hmm. where like the entire month leading up to it, it's Halloween every day. So we we watch monster movies all all October. It's it, it's our favorite part of the year, and so it being October now, we thought we'd talk about some corpses. Yeah, I mean it's part and partial to the holiday, right? Contemplations uh, of death inform our our monsters, our our traditions, and uh, you you can't uh, separate it from Halloween. So we might as well just get right down to the nitty gritty and talk about what. It, what do we do when it, when a human being dies? What have we done in the past? What are we doing now? And what might we do in the future? Yeah, so our inspiration for this episode was, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. I don't know, a while ago, Robert and I were in here one morning looking for a cool story to talk about. And my wife, Rachel, had sent me this story about uh, a tree in Ireland that got blown over in a storm. And as it was blown over in the storm, it pulled up a large clod of topsoil with its roots. And hanging there in the roots was half of a human skeleton. Yes. And the other half was still left in the ground below the tree. But a tree had grown up out of this dead body that had supposedly been somebody probably murdered in the Middle Ages. Isn't that the case? Uh, yeah, he you know he was probably killed either in combat or some sort of a, you know bloodthirsty Irish duel. Who knows? But then yeah, buried in a shallow grave. And uh, over time, uh, a tree grows there or, or adjacent to it. And uh, when that tree falls over, rips up a portion of his skeletal remains. Yeah, so what began as grisly ended kind of oddly beautiful with, yeah. the, with the tree coming up out of the ground. And and we found out while looking a bit further into the story and this topic of trees growing out of human corpses that uh, some people are actually seeking this on purpose. And so th- that got us thinking about the whole idea of 
of new ways of dealing with our dead. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of weird things you could do with the dead body. I mean, you, you might just take a corpse and put it in a rocking chair on your front porch and <laughs> let it scare the trick-or-treaters, or you might throw it into a volcano, or I don't know, what are some other good things to do? Well, I always like the danger diabolic model where you just, uh, where you're just sealed in gold, right? And just alive, just mummified as a golden statue. Ooh, that's a really good one. So it's like the, the inverse of the person who gets molten gold poured down his throat. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it ties in, of course, our need with a lot of burial practices to, to make something of us that will stand the test of time. We have died. Our name is going to die. But hey, show you the solid gold statue of me. Nobody's going to come around and claim that and reuse those materials. (laughs) Right. I mean, wouldn't that be ironic if uh, the great memorial to the the dead beloved leader ends up in the electronics of the future? There you go. I was just thinking about that. I end up getting broken down again, and then my gold is used in various little uh, wearable gadgets. So I got to make a catalytic converter. Come on. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, anyway, so one of the things that we found is interesting looking into this is how much some of the new and exciting ways of disposing of our dead actually mimic some of the oldest ways that we're sort of uh, coming full circle. And so I think we should start by looking at some ancient practices for disposal of the dead. Yeah. I mean, first of all, just think to like the most basic scenario possible, just some primordial human wandering around out in the waste, wastelands, you know, dressed in furs. He or she kills over dead. What happens? Nature takes its course. Right. Decomposition, insects moving in, laying their eggs, scavenging bacteria. Animals. Yeah, scavenging animals coming in, tearing it apart, the sun, the elements, all of it working uh, to just erase that body from the face of the earth, like all signs of it. I mean, it, it's one of those, uh, those situations when you look at the fossil record. Like one of the reasons that the fossil record is inherently incomplete is because you have to have a certain set of conditions met for the skeletal remains of an ancient beast to fossilize and therefore stand the test of time uh, and potentially wind up being discovered by uh, explorers or paleontologists. Yeah, definitely. Most terrestrial animals do not die under conditions that are conducive for fossilization. Yeah, they come from nothing and they return to nothing, and it just it's all part of the, the recycling. Um, and so we see some, some of our, our older models of, of dealing with the dead. You see them... Uh, working in synergy with this uh, with this kind of recycling of the body. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites, of course, is is sky burial or celestial burial, um, which is a, a form of exposure burial or excarnation, if you will. The most famous example of this uh, is probably the Tibetan model, which is called Jator, uh, or the giving of alms to the birds. So, and this is, this is when you have the the body of a deceased individual, and it's um, essentially dismantled, taken apart by a chosen individual, so that uh, it can be quickly consumed by the vultures. And uh, there are a number of scenarios that play into into this. Okay, for, for starters, just the Tibetan environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ground is uh, is rocky or it's frozen. It's so available soil is at a premium. So any any available soil uh, in the Tibetan uh, landscape, you're you're probably using it to produce food. Yeah, you, you can't waste a lot of it on. On, on burial grounds. Yeah, I'd imagine you're farming or grazing your animals on it. Right. Now, meanwhile, you have natural scavengers in the 
area. You have you have some wolves. You have uh, uh, carrion hungry uh, uh, lammergeiers and vultures that are uh, uh, haunting the air overhead. Well, hold on. What's a lammergeier? Oh, a lammergeier is a wonderful. Um, scavenging bird that uh, depends on on the bones and it'll take the bones up to a high height drop them let the drones the, the, the bones crack open and then go down and uh, and have at them that's so, that's genius yeah i mean it's and, and perhaps serves as some of the inspiration uh for the 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 practice of sky burial as, yeah. uh, as i'm about to about to relate here the, the other aspect is that the while, while we tend to associate Tibet today, you know, very strongly with Tibetan Buddhism, uh, but the region's earlier Bon religion was animistic, uh, and it viewed non-humans as spiritual beings. So, in, in this case, you would have, uh, you know, it's not just a scavenging bird; it's a, it's a holy animal, right? And so, it's it's all the more uh, appropriate that it consume the dead. That kind of practice seems to me like it's especially uh, acceptable to people if you view the animals that are scavenging as holy in some way. Because yeah. we don't really tend to look at vultures that way. I think maybe we should. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we think of vultures as kind of like nasty creatures. I don't know, like sewer rats or something. But if you look at a vulture as a, as a noble beast, having it consume your flesh seems like a cool thing. Yeah. Even if there's so. some defensive vomiting involved. Yeah, we spend our whole lives wanting to... To fly and hey, here's your chance in the belly of a vulture. Um, but uh, so the, the approach here is kind of like that of the, the dismantling that I mentioned with the Lammergeier. So uh, you have a period of mourning and prayer, and the body's blessed, it's cleaned, it's wrapped in white cloth, and finally the spine is broken. And this allows the body to be folded into a smaller bundle, and then it's carried to a sacred burial site uh, on the back of a close friend or a family member. And then uh, the actual sky burial itself. Um, Falls to either a rogyapa, uh, whose work is uh, it's more straightforward rendering of the corpse, or a lama burial master, uh, who as a monk recites prayers during the ritual in addition to breaking the body. So we're talking about taking the body, putting it face down on the stones. Um, so it's not literal burial. No, no. It's, the- it's more like I am burying you. Well, in the sky, in the vulture, in the birds, in the scavengers that will take off. Uh, but there's there's some aid applied here. So uh, talking about um, uh, using a flaying knife or axe, cutting off the hair, then slicing up the body, eviscerating it, chopping off the limbs, uh, just a ritual dismantling of the body uh, to allow easier consumption by the bird. So you just don't have a bunch of, you know, dead bodies lingering about. And then, um, I mean, they'll even go so far as to... Uh, pulverize the remaining bones with a hammer, then mixing them with like a barley flour so that the birds can easily consume that as well. Basically doing the Lammergeier's job for Man, it. Man, that is commitment. Yeah. yeah. But it's uh but it's beautiful in its in its way, you know, because I mean it's it's very different from especially the modern Western idea of of burying uh the body in this little tomb and, and embalming it, which we're gonna get into all that shortly. Um but it's more in keeping with that uh, the, the the basic reality of death. Well, it's it's not only more in keeping with the natural process of uh, of decomposition, but it's actively encouraging it. It's going in the opposite direction of embalming. So if you look at uh, modern Western burial practices with caskets and embalming as essentially trying to prevent the onset of decomposition or, mm-hmm. or put up a big halt sign for nature, 
this is not only allowing nature to take its course, but it's trying to hasten nature's access to the body. Yeah, yeah, it's it's saying let's speed this up a bit because uh, the human body is a fairly large body, uh, you know, compared to a lot of creatures out yeah. there. So we're, it does take a little megafauna. time. Yeah, we are, and uh, and there are a lot of us. And uh, particularly if you have a, a region that's engaging in this kind of sky burial, you know, it, it would be easy for the bodies to build up at these sacred sites. Now, another uh, famous model of exposure burial is uh, the Zoroastrian model uh, of sky burial via a, a Tower of Silence. Th- this is so interesting and mm-hmm. cool. And also, the Tower of Silence has always sounded to me like the name of a great strategy game that doesn't oh, exist. Yeah. Like you should have uh, chess and go and Tower of Silence. I was thinking like a Dungeons and Dragons module. Like, oh, we're going to play the Tower of Silence. It's a classic campaign uh, uh, adventure here, you know. Just because it sounds like a place you would go and encounter a wizard, but uh, or a gelatinous cube, yeah. But uh, but the but the Tower of Silence, you actually still find these in modern day Iran. Uh, this form of exposure burial is still practiced uh, uh, in, in parts of India. And the model for this Tower of Silence, uh, basically, you have a this cylindrical tower it looks like a big stone drum, mm-hmm. um, and on top the the roof slopes slightly in toward the center. You know, keep things from falling off because that's where you arrange the bodies of the dead in three concentric rings for men, women, and at the the innermost region, the children. And uh, basically, you just let the sun, insects, and scavenging birds do their work, uh, stripping the unclean body. And that's key here, because in the Zoroastrian worldview, the dead body is just an inherently unclean thing that is... Um, that not only is it susceptible, I mean, in, in reality, of course, it, there are diseases associated with the dead body. Sure. Uh, but uh, uh, within this uh, this uh, magical worldview, the, also you could have an evil spirit enter into the body. The the just nastiness of the body could uh, have, could not only make its surroundings physically unclean, but spiritually unclean. Mm-hmm. So, like this, they just want the the natural elements to take care of that blight as soon as possible. So they just let the scavengers do their work. Uh, and then the remaining bones are taken and stored in an ossuary. I love the idea here that nature is a sort of cleansing agent, too. Yeah. So it's not just allowing nature to do its work, but it's uh, allowing nature to do something useful for you. Yeah. You know, to, to not only get rid of this uh, this stinking and uh, and potentially disease-causing mass of flesh, but to potentially remove spiritual danger. Yes, totally. Now, of course, in the ancient world, we don't want to say that it was all natural and stuff, because some people in the ancient world had very similar ideas to the modern embalming mentality. Yeah, I mean, the obvious example here is uh, Egyptian mummification, which uh, Christian and I just did a a big episode about. Uh, I think uh, by the time this airs, it will be like the episode before it. Uh, so go back and listen to that if, if uh, you're interested. But even that model, even this model that eventually evolves to the point where elaborate means are being taken to ensure that the body remains in kind of like a lifelike state for all eternity, its its origins still lie in the natural process of decomposition or the natural mummification, of this, in this case, of the body. Uh, because the earliest models of Egyptian uh, burial that you find... There's there's no casket, there's no housing. It's just uh, a few belongings and a dead body 
buried in the sand. And in the dry sand, this is where you end up with these, really the incidental uh, preservation of internal organs, the crisping of the skin, um, the natural mummification of the body. And then it's only as their funeral practices evolve they so they start throwing in caskets and, and other enclosures, and then they're interfering with the natural process that had just been a part of living and dying in that environment. Then they return to mummification as a means to, to reclaim what was happening naturally. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought about it that way, but we could think about decomposition not as a feature of the animal that has died, but as a feature of the environment that it dies in, or at least wherever its body is stored. I mean, I suppose you could take a body from one environment to another. But yeah, if you are in ancient Egypt or at least a very dry, sandy desert part of it, mummification is almost a natural process. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really like the, the mummification as we think about it, the unnatural mummification, the the funeral mummification, it simply means to reclaim the natural process. Yeah. And then of course we've got cremation, right? This is something that's popular now in the modern world and it has existed for a long time though it's in different cultures come in and out of fashion mm-hmm. over the millennia uh, cremation just means of course burning the body into ashes and it's existed for thousands of years as a funerary practice we find evidence of it going back to the stone age uh, just one example of very ancient cremation is the skeletal remains found in Australia known as Lake Mungo One or the Lake Mungo Lady, discovered in 1969 by Australian archaeologists. Have you heard about this? No. It's very interesting. So more than 20,000 years ago, and I phrase it that way because I've seen wildly conflicting dates on this, uh, it could be around 20,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, or up to 60,000 years ago, and I think... uh this seems to reflect a debate about the dating of these remains, but I think the most agreed upon date now is about 40,000 years ago. I could be wrong about that. Anyway, uh, at that time, there was a civilization living near Lake Mungo in Australia, and, and the Mungo lady was one of these people. Evidence shows that her body was cremated, but not just cremated. It was burned, and then the leftover bones were crushed and then burned again before mm-hmm. being buried. And this definitely, to me, indicates some kind of ritual, but what did it mean? I I don't know if anybody has any good speculation about this, but it's fascinating to imagine what would cause this. I mean, can you imagine this being done out of respect for a dead loved one? It might have been some kind of ritual along those lines, or it could have been to prevent uh, the returning from beyond the grave of a of a haunting or something like that. Well, you know, at heart, they're using the, the technology of fire. Yeah. To dispose of the dead. And and maybe we can sort of compare that to the, the more modern approaches where it's like, oh, well, this is a, a technological, a modern cultured means of disposing of the dead. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I can get behind it as opposed to just, you know, wolves eating a dead loved one. And so, you know, th- this is this is like the, the high tech means of the day. Yeah. Like we're not this is not just going to be a burial. This is not going to be just left in the woods for animals. We're going to use our greatest technological achievement. The, the, our mastery of fire to do nature's job for it. Yeah, and I think we should definitely not fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, what a bizarre uh, funeral practice they had. We're more advanced now. I mean, look at all the strange yeah. stuff we do now. I mean, funeral practices change over time, and this is what they did for some reason. Yeah, I mean, when uh, I was talking about um, ancient Egyptian mummification with Christian, we there were many times we're like, yeah, this is this. 
sounds grotesque and weird to an outsider, uh, you know, across time and space. But is it really that different from what goes on inside a mortuary today with the embalming of a corpse? Not really. I mean, I can't imagine anything weirder and grosser than modern embalming. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so more about cremation. Cremation was practiced in parts of Asia on and off throughout history. Hinduism has actually traditionally viewed cremation as the proper ritual for the body of a dead adult. Mm-hmm. So they had uh, cremation ceremonies called uh, Entima Sanskar. I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Or the Entiesti, and those are sort of meaning the last rites or the last sacrifice. And this is one of the 16 life rituals of Hinduism. So it was believed that when you performed cremation on uh, on a dead adult Hindu, that it sort of ushered the soul into the next life. Yeah, and that's, of course, an, an, an important fact to keep in mind when looking at any uh, funeral model, uh, particularly in uh, in, in, in Hinduism and Buddhism is the the essential uh, journey into the next phase of existence. Yeah, and I also found several sources saying there's evidence of ancient cremation practice in China going back to 8000 BCE, uh, and that cremation seems to have often been an accepted practice in Buddhist societies. In Western civilization, it's a little different. Uh, so the pagan Scandinavians were all about burning their dead. Mm-hmm. They loved some cremation uh, until those societies largely converted to Christianity in the later Roman period and then the Middle Ages. Ah, uh, Because then you're having this idea of not only resurrection, but a physical resurrection of the dead. Yeah. And Christian and Jewish theology has differed on this. Um, I'll say something about that in a minute. We can see examples of cremation in Greek literature. Like if you look back at the Iliad, so it's a ritual cremation as an honor extended to heroes and great leaders. And this may have actually emerged as a response to necessity for cremation in wartime conditions. So imagine you're having a big battle with somebody mm-hmm. you know, on, on alien soil and a great Greek hero falls on the battlefield and the war is still going on and you want to you want to honor the hero, but you can't take him home at the moment and you don't want to bury him on foreign soil. So you have a funeral of flames and then you carry the ashes back after the war is over, the ashes or the bones or something like that. And this may have caused cremation to be associated with a with the valorous elite of society. And the same thing seems to have happened in ancient Rome. So ritual cremation was seen as this honorable, prestigious thing to do with the body, and thus it became very popular. Well, I mean, you talking we were talking about sky burial earlier, right? And you are physically becoming one with the birds that ascend into heaven. Yeah. Like here, you get to ascend into heaven, uh, or at least up into the sky, as a pillar of smoke. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful and cosmic in its own way. Yeah. And of course, with both the Greeks and the Romans, there are other stages to this ritual beyond just the burning. Like there are stories of uh, of the bones being collected after the burning and then maybe washed with something nice like oil or wine and then stored in some appropriately stately receptacle. Uh, but then after a while in the Western world, cremation started to go out of style. So some theological strains of Christianity and Judaism have historically opposed cremation on religious or cultural grounds. Uh, this wasn't always necessarily the case, and many Christians and Jews are totally fine with cremation today. It just depends on which subset of, of theological beliefs you might have. And cremation remained pretty unpopular and uncommon in the West, except for 
you know, extenuating circumstances, like when you had a bunch of plague victims you had to get rid of or something. Mm -hmm. And it stayed that way until the late 1800s when some influential doctors in Britain and the United States started advocating cremation again. And, um, it, it, though definitely with different method than the traditional great pagan funeral. Right. This was more like what we see with modern cremation today, where the body is put into a heated chamber and then the tissues are reduced to ash and the bones are then ground into a fine powder. Yeah, a very high temperature technological burn, really, as right. opposed to just... I mean, it's it's great to put a body on a on a boat and then shoot it with the, uh, the flaming arrow, but to demand that level of archery skill on the part of the average citizen it's just too much it's embarrassing to yeah. miss but it's hard to miss getting the body into the uh, into the chamber you, know? mm-hmm. you just kind of exactly. roll it on in and then of course in recent years cremation has been on the rise yes yeah and uh, we're actually going to run through some of the stats on that uh, here in a second but i guess to close out just sort of ancient models on on top of what we mentioned yes you saw burials in the ground oh yeah and um and, and really, I think that is still in keeping with the idea of decomposition, right? Let decomposition happen in the ground, but where I don't have to see it. And then let me, I'll put a, a big stone over it because I don't want to see it, which means I don't want to see, uh, wolves running around with pieces of my loved ones, you know? Yeah. So, and of course, those burials were very diverse too. Just yes. like we'll be talking about the ones today. I think some were probably much more natural where the body is wrapped in a shroud or a cloth and then buried and allowed to decompose. Others had rock tombs and right. stuff like that. I think you could just get increasingly carried away as a culture, it, it, particularly if you begin to see more and more that individual is still alive. Because it's a, it's a tricky area. As, as I mentioned in the mummification episode, that person is not your loved one anymore. It's not a person anymore. It's a corpse. Yeah. But it still looks like them. It's still them on a physical level. And you want to treat it with respect. Yeah. And to bring back Christianity and Judaism again, sometimes this can be complicated by theological beliefs because some people might have a belief that says the body is actually important for the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, like some forms of Judaism and Christianity will look at that body and say, well, that body is eventually going to be resurrected one day. Mm-hmm. And you need to keep the body intact for that event. Meanwhile, in uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, where you have the where you have the model of reincarnation, then that individual has just has moved on to a different form, to a different realm. Yeah, and therefore the body is just worthless at this point. Yeah, yeah. There's more of a, a spiritual afterlife, yeah, or rebirth. Yeah. So, what do funeral practices look like in in at least the United States today? Well, uh, I imagine for a lot of our, particularly U.S. Uh, listeners, we probably don't have to tell you. You've probably seen it in your life, just at least what it what it looks like, what the traditions consist of. But, but it's interesting, even if you've dealt with it in your life, how much you don't actually see. Oh, yeah. I mean, we are pretty far removed from the physical process of death these days to, I mean, to really do a staggering degree. And, and it ultimately makes, I think, death more shocking when it occurs. Yeah. Um, but just uh, just to put some of the, the numbers behind what's happening, according to the National Funeral Directors Association, uh, funeral homes in the in the USA for 2015, we have 19,391 of them, and that's down from 19,486 just uh, in 2014. So, 
we see a decline every year. Hmm. Um, fewer of these uh, of these funeral homes, and most of these funeral homes are, are family owned. I'm wondering how much the average funeral costs, because in a lot of my research for this episode, I saw some numbers that were very it seemed very high to me. Some people were saying, "Oh, ten thousand dollars for a funeral." I mean, yeah, I think that's probably the high end, uh, according to the, uh, to the National Funeral Directors Association. The median cost of a, of a funeral for 2012 was $7,045. And I've seen some more recent stats that push that up to around $8,000 for today. So... Um, I'm, you know, think of that as just a general sort of framework. You can probably go lower. You can definitely go higher. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially you know, if you're dealing with prime burial real estate. If you're dealing with the most expensive model of casket available, which um, might be the worst, and we'll get into that in a yes. bit. But uh, yeah, another thing is I think comparing burial versus cremation, the primary means of of disposal of body in the West today. Like I said, cremation started to come back on the scene in the late 1800s, but it still wasn't very popular. It was very slow to pick up. Right, but it's really been picking up in recent years. So uh, according to these stats from the National Funeral Directors Association, uh, in 2005, burial accounted for uh, 61.4%, cremation 32.3%. Still, that's a hefty number of of, of of cremations, right? 2015... This year, this is they're pro- they're projecting that cremations actually um, tip the scale to forty eight point five percent versus forty five point six percent for burial. Wow! So we see cremation In just ten act- years. Yeah, cremation becoming uh, um, slightly more popular, and they project that if this the rate continues by twenty thirty, we'll see cremation accounting for seventy one percent versus twenty three point two percent for burial. So. Well, I can definitely think of one reason this might be emerging, which is lack of real estate. Right. That's that's definitely uh, definitely one factor. And I think you can also factor in just more diverse backgrounds for residents of the United States, either co- you know the, their actual cultural background or um, you know various ideas about uh, about uh, about funeral rites that they have absorbed from other cultures. Oh yeah, yeah. However, I do have to say that uh, you know we're going to talk a little bit more about cremation in a bit and some of the problems with cremation. Yeah. And I feel like that c- could uh, play a role in undermining this projected um, uh, rise, uh, continued rise of crematory practice. But back to your point about real estate. Um, indeed, uh, a 2013 study from York University Cemetery, Cemetery Research Group suggested nearly half of the cemeteries in England could fill up uh, entirely in the following two decades. Wow. So, I, I know I've seen Josh and Chuck do some video a while back about cemetery real estate. I think it was in New York and how it's just so high in demand and so expensive it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean it simply put there are a lot of us on the earth at any given point that are alive. Yeah. And if you start counting our populations of the dead, that's an even more staggering number. You just can't continue to say, all right, this plot of ground belongs to this person for all eternity. Yeah. You either There's have, limited ground. Yeah, you have to fall uh you have to you have to go with different models, either the reuse of grave plots and then storing the the ashes away. I've seen some really fascinating models out of Japan uh where you essentially have um you know, a, a mausoleum storing facility, and you can go to a chamber, and it will, uh, like a machine, will bring the urn to you. 
So um, kind of like a combination between a mausoleum and, and some sort of, uh, you know, um, coin-operated convenience uh, uh, machine. I'm thinking of the millions of pods, like the scene in The Matrix yeah. where he wakes up and yeah. pull one out and bring it to you. What's the most effective way to store this these remains and then facilitate uh, visiting the remains and honoring the remains, right? Yeah, serialized shelving. Yeah. Now, this brings us to uh, embalming in a... Again, I need to point out that embalming, of course, has been around for a long time. Even those, you know, some of the ancient uh, Egyptian models of mummification involved uh, varying degrees of, of embalming. Yeah, but if you think of embalming as the traditional Western way of, of burial, you might actually be wrong there, depending on what you mean by traditional. Yeah. Uh, because actually the way we embalm corpses today, m- you know, most corpses in the United States – is not all that old of a practice, right? I've read that it's more linked to the Civil War period. Indeed, yeah, uh, particularly to one individual, Dr. Thomas Holmes, who uh, introduced chemical embalming um, out on the battlefields during the Civil War, because obviously at the time you have a tremendous amount of Americans dying on American soil, though typically, you know, far from home. Far from home. So in order to return that body to the family and return it in a way that it's still preserved enough for burial. And again, keeping in mind uh, Western Christian models um, of, uh, of, re- of, of, of resurrection and physical resurrection, you know, the importance for the body to remain intact in some way, shape, or form. Uh, in order to honor that and potentially make a little money, I've seen some, some very critical um, views on uh, Dr. Thomas uh, Holmes' uh, innovation here. Uh, he introduced uh, embalming the bodies. And the, per- the preservative chemical of choice from about 1880 to 1910, including for Holmes himself, was the use of arsenic. Oh, no. Yeah, which, of course, is, is a poison, uh, as well as a, a, a decent choice for embalming a dead body. Well, surely arsenic was replaced with something that's not as harmful. Yeah, because I mean, the thing is, you're filling this body with poison, and you're depositing it in the ground, of course, the poison is going to get out of the body. Now the, bo- the the poison is in the ground. The poison is potentially in the water and not just contained within the cemetery, but also uh, leaching out into the er- the area surrounding the cemetery. Yeah. So, yes, we uh, eventually that was replaced, but we replaced it with formaldehyde, oh. which uh, the Environmental Protection Agency currently lists as a probable carcinogen. And uh, each year in the United States alone, enough embalming fluid uh, is pumped into the earth via these uh, corpses to fill eight Olympic-sized swimming pools. That is disgusting. Well, let's let's talk about how it works. Okay. Well, I'm just going to um, summarize here, and this is from actually the How Stuff Works article, "How Embalming Works." Uh, it's an excellent uh, one of our cl- classic articles. There, check it out if you want a more informed uh, uh, journey. But goes down like this. Bodies placed on a table, bathed and cleaned. Sounds good. That's pretty much every funeral practice ever, right? Yeah. So next we find that uh, embalming fluid gets injected into the arteries through a tube connected to an embalming machine. I don't know what that machine looks like, but it sounds kind of uh, aggressive. Oh, you've seen Phantasm and <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. You know oh, what this no. machine looks like. Oh, okay, yeah. Anyway, they say the, the fluid's a combination of water and preservative chemicals, uh, which would be like formaldehyde, like we talked about a minute ago. 
and then uh, be- because the chemical dehydrates and hardens the tissue, the fluid's presence inside the body works as a preservative by making the deceased an unsuitable host for bacteria and other organisms. And this slows the decomposition because it just makes the the body an inhospitable place. Okay, a blight it's hard upon to live the world. There. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Next, the amount. Uh, Next, it's important to note the amount of fluid required through all steps varies based on a case-by-case analysis. But on average, an embalmer needs to use a gallon or 3.8 liters of embalming solution for every 50 pounds or 22.7 kilograms of body weight. That is so much formaldehyde. Now, so they've got to take the blood out, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, so the, the bye, blood's... Bye-bye blood. Yeah, out, out comes the blood. Then the vessels are tied off and the incisions are sutured and closed. So I'm just closing any opening that remains there. The next you got to treat the internal body cavity. You do that by removing the liquids and gases and adding more of that embalming fluid. Yep, then you wash that body, you dress it up, and of course apply uh, cosmetics as need be. And it, obviously depending on the nature of death, there may be additional... Um, purely cosmetic procedures that have to take place if you're going to have the, the, the body uh, you know, be viewed uh, you know, in a very formal way. Yeah. Now, in the standard uh, Western funerary practice today, once the embalming's done, you get the coffin, right? Right. You go straight to the casket. So it is Dracula's bed. You you know what a coffin is. You've seen one before. But just to be clear, it's a box. It's usually made of wood or metal. And you place the dead body inside the box for burial. So they range from very basic, like the pine box in the sort of as-I-lay-dying as sense. Yeah. And then you've got the uh, elaborate, expensive, ornate boxes with tropical woods that are, you know, some people want them, I guess. The word coffin actually comes from the Greek and the Latin uh, coffinos, which means basket. Oh, okay. Well, this would this makes me think of the Egyptian uh, model again, and like the the evolution of that. Because first it came just bare bodies thrown into the into a pit, and mm-hmm. then they're wrapping them in something, and eventually you're using a basket, and that's the evolution there into more uh, traditional casketry. Yeah, the the modern sarcophagus. But but why coffins? Like why even have a coffin? So I think the idea is they serve as a basic type of barrier between the body and the elements or nature. And though they're typically not creating any kind of perfect seal, they slow the interaction between inside and outside, even though that's going to happen eventually. Yeah, because, I mean, decomposition comes from without and within. Like some of the first things that happen are your your insides basically falling apart yeah. and rebelling and digesting itself. The bacteria inside yeah. you become opportunistic. They see a chance and they start chowing down. Mm-hmm. And I guess the idea of slowing the rate of decomposition is a psychological comfort to some of the bereaved, uh, thinking that it'll, it'll just prevent, I don't know, the the corruption of the body of the dead loved one. I mean, I, I guess there is some idea associated with mummification and embalming that you're somehow preserving the dignity of the dead person by keeping them as long as possible from beginning to look like a dead person. Yeah, and I think it's important here to remember. One thing I, I read in, um, I think it was the, the History of Hell by Alice K. Turner, I believe is the author. Uh, so that most people don't have like a 100 percent uh, worldview about death and the afterlife. Mm-hmm. There'll be sort of like a primary idea that you adhere to, but then you'll still also carry around other models in your head simultaneously. So yeah. I might be the type of person who 
um, has a very, say, secular idea of what happens when you die, that you just decompose and, and, and then you're in the grave. But, but then you're I'm never really sure. Yeah, or it's like in, at some point you still have like this idea that you came up with, uh, that you grew up with about um, about an afterlife, or maybe you really like a particular magical model that involves ghosts or what have you, and so that model's still kicking around. So when you're engaging with the dead body, yeah, it's, you're not only pulling out your core belief system, the one that you you know would put on a, a poster. But you're also engaging with these these other models that are yeah. competing in the background. Yeah. And then, of course, there's also uh, the widespread rationale that goes the other way. It says it's going to shield the external environment from being contaminated by the corpse. Mm-hmm. That could be especially important if you have pumped the corpse full of poisonous chemicals like formaldehyde. Right. So people selling funeral services have sometimes claimed to offer coffins with greater and greater levels of security in the form of protective caskets with uh, something like a rubber gasket to seal the body off from the environment as if this were desirable for some reason. And um, even if that kind of thing appeals to you, you don't want to seal a coffin too tightly because a decaying body produces gas. And if you don't allow for ventilation of this gas, the coffin can literally explode. This oh. happens. I, I read a Washington Post article about this saying that some of these protective coffins really can cause this to happen. Uh, but then to prevent that, some of the so-called protective coffins were created with semi-permeable seals that allow the coffin to burp as gas accumulates. The burping casket. I like it. And then outside the casket, you might also have another layer of protection, which would be these concrete burial vaults. This is a, a, an area that I really wasn't that familiar with tell um a uh my dad died and then b i wrote a, a a short story involving a body coming out of a grave when i really had to to sit down and realize oh yeah there there are two different layers one would have to bust out of uh yeah and i think you'll find these in a lot of graves today from what i've read their main function is cosmetic it's to protect the appearance of funeral grounds by preventing settling of the grave pit over time. So as a coffin and its contents begin to decompose, they, you know, they, there's a vacuum of space basically and the dirt sinks down. Yeah, sunken graves. Uh, yeah. I, I spent part of my, my childhood living in like really rural uh, Tennessee. Uh, near Kentucky Lake, mm-hmm. and there were some old uh, like family cemeteries in the woods uh, where the houses had been uh, moved away ages ago because the the flooding of the area for the the, the dam. Yeah, but uh, but you'd go out there and there would be these old grave sites, and you knew there were grave sites because of the sunken graves where the, wow. the body and the casket or whatever was down there has just has flattened out, and uh, and so you just have this little dip. That's creepy. <laughs> You're saying not even a headstone or with a headstone? Um, I feel like a, some of these had headstones, but not like really fancy ones, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I guess I can see where that would be a troubling idea because it, it sends that very, very direct message of absence, of there's something gone, there's something depleted. Yeah. That person that you loved is no longer here, and look, here is the sunken grave to suggest that even physically they are no longer a part of this world. Yeah. Now, of course, forces other than time and decomposition can also cause this. It can be a problem if a cemetery doesn't have concrete burial vaults on all of its coffins, because what if they need to drive the backhoe over the cemetery grounds to dig out a grave oh, yeah. and it causes the uh, the earth to collapse 
that's a problem also. So, so you've got to have these things if you want your cemetery grounds to, you know, continually look flat and nice and not have collapsing areas. Or there might be other solutions, but this is traditionally been a solution. So what is the impact of all, all of this casketry? Well, in Grave Matters, a journey through the modern funeral industry to a natural way of burial, the author Mark Harris says on average, 10 acres of cemetery ground contains enough coffin wood to build 40 houses, oh. almost 1,000 tons of casket steel, 20,000 tons of vault concrete, and enough toxic chemicals uh, to fill a private swimming pool. I like that it's, it's like a backyard swimming pool, not an Olympic swimming pool. Uh, I love the swimming pool as a standard measurement of uh, of foulness. <laughs> is that one of the is that one of the measures on Wolfram Alpha? It may be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I forget how it uh, it converts into uh, metrics, but yeah. Okay, so that's some of the impact of of burial, embalming, putting in a casket or a vault and then burying. It it's not necessarily the most environmentally fr- friendly way to do things, certainly not the cheapest. And there, there are these problems, but also there are problems with cremation, right? Yeah, I mean, the big one, of course, carbon emissions, because you're just burning a lot of stuff. Um, and also noting it's not just a matter of, oh, well, here's a body, I'm going to catch it on fire. Or here's a body in a casket, let's catch it on fire. You've got to produce the heat necessary to burn that body up, which means the use of fuel of some kind. So there's an added cost there. There's an added uh, uh, there's an added emission cost there as well. And on top of that, you have uh, all these bodies that are being burned up that have uh, uh, mercury in their tooth fillings. So when you burn that up, you have the addition of mercury pollution. Oh, man, that's gross. And I've, I've got to read this quote from a BBC article I read. Quote, mercury from amalgam vaporized in crematoria is blamed for up to 16% of UK airborne mercury emissions. That's all from dead bodies. Oh, that is crazy. Um, now, there are green crematories out there. Um, and uh, However, most of the, the green aspects of what's going on here are related to just, uh, for instance, storing the dead up until they have enough to justify the high heating costs. Uh, so like not burning one at a time. Right, yeah. Like wait until you have several that need to be, make the most out of your fuel use. Uh, because remember, we're talking about necessary temperatures of uh, 1,600 to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, 871 to 982 degrees Celsius, necessary to burn the bodies up completely. It's the crematory equivalent of carpooling. Yeah, yeah. And and it makes sense, you know. If you're going to you're going to use this this uh, this level of fuel to burn a body, go ahead and uh, burn up several while the oven's heated up. Now, in terms of figuring out the the carbon emissions aspect of this, I did find an interesting 2013 study from the Desert Research Institute uh, that actually looked into the pollution of crematory traditions in South Asia, uh, where, again, you know, we mentioned the Buddhist and Hindu models and and how uh, prevalent it is over there. Mm -hmm. And their findings were, first of all, that funeral pyre emissions contain sunlight-absorbing organic carbon aerosols, or uh, brown carbon. And uh, and here's a quote uh, uh, driving home uh, the findings too said the researchers estimate the mean light absorbing organic aerosol mass emitted from funeral pyres to be equivalent of approximately 23% of the total um, carbon aerosol mass produced by anthropogenic burning of fossil fuels and 10% of biofuels in the region so it's a significant uh, contribution 
Yeah, no doubt. Now, I can hear what you're probably back there thinking, because our listeners always love to suggest this option. You've got a problem with a thing on Earth. Let's say it's radioactive waste. Shoot it into space. Shoot it into space, they say. <laughs> now, if we've got problems with dead bodies on Earth piling up, you, you know, if you, uh, you want to bury them according to proper burial practices that are enforced by most cemeteries, well, that's going to use a ton of concrete and steel and take up all this space and leak toxic chemicals into the ground. You want to burn them, it's going to release mercury and carbon emissions. So why don't we just shoot our dead bodies into space? Oh, so many problems with that model. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, there, there are huge problems with that model, but there are private companies that will dispose of your remains in space for a hefty fee. If you want to pinch a penny, you can just have your cremains transported into space during a brief suborbital flight and then return to Earth for disposal. But uh, that sounds kind of, eh. Are any of these co- companies offering full body disposal in space? Uh, they... <sighs> Not that I know of. They might if the price were right. Yeah, because that is going to be a heck of a price. Let me explain. So there are several companies that offer space burial packages. Uh, One of them is called Elysium Space. Noel, can you give me a little uh, spacey music to, to play under while I read some of their materials? Beautiful. Okay. From their materials... Elysium Space offers families the ability to send a symbolic portion of cremated remains into the eternal wonders of the night sky, forever in remembrance of our dearly departed. Through partnerships with the most reliable space transportation companies, Elysium Space provides unique celestial services, the Shooting Star Memorial, Lunar Memorial, and Milky Way Memorial, to create an everlasting tribute and connective experience with those who have gone before us. Wait, the Lunar Memorial? Oh, yes. They'll actually send your remains to the moon? So they claim, but we'll, we'll get into this. So first things first... This is not talking about blowing your entire dead body out the airlock so that, you know, pieces of it are going to end up smacking into the observation window of the ISS. Here, what we're really talking about is something I I might call cremation plus. Ah. So you are cremated. That is the method of disposal for your body. So we're keeping all the carbon emissions and everything. And then a, quote, symbolic portion of the ashes can be transported to space on one of these scheduled launches. Why just a symbolic portion? Well, it's because of cost. Uh, According to Thomas Civet, the founder of Elysium Space, cremation usually leaves behind about six pounds of ashes. I looked at other places saying that the average cremation goes from three to nine pounds of stuff left over. And that's a lot of ashes. Uh, The cost of sending cargo into space into low Earth orbit is calculated on a by-weight basis. So if it's $10,000 per pound of payload and you want to send six pounds of ashes into space, that's a $60,000 journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would would there be exterment if if interment is burial in the grave? What would sending ashes into space be? Uh, Yeah, I would guess so. (laughs) Anyway, uh, companies like Elysium Space would be limiting this symbolic portion of your remains to a quantity more in the realm of a gram or something. I wonder if you if you knew an astronaut, and granted, there's a very small group of individuals, but if you knew somebody that was going into space, could you potentially bribe them to to smuggle up a symbolic uh, sample of some ashes? Maybe you could. I don't know. I mean, I I know they have limited amounts of cargo they can bring with them. Yeah, but but maybe 
maybe it would be worth their while to leave the iPod at home if you, uh, you know, if you grease their palm enough to uh, replace it with a, a similar package of ashes. Well, that's supposedly how the moon exhibit got to the moon. Did you ever read about this? No. Oh, there's potentially a tiny art exhibit on the moon. I think it's disputed whether it's actually there <laughs> or not, but it was this tiny art exhibit involving some kind of weird drawing of Andy Warhol's that looks like it is supposed to be a penis. And uh, and this tiny, tiny wafer of an art exhibit was supposedly left on the moon by a team of astronauts who walked on the surface. Huh. One of the f- Look it up. Okay. There's, a, there's a funny Wikipedia page about it. <laughs> okay. But anyway, the packages offered by Elysium Space, this is great. So they've got the Shooting Star Memorial. That's uh, $1,990. And that puts that symbolic portion of your loved one's remains into orbit, uh, quote, only to end this celestial journey as a shooting star. This is a nice way of saying that you're released into orbit and then your orbit decays until you burn up upon reentering the atmosphere. Okay, and then technically you're a shooting star because that's what a shooting star is, yeah. something uh, zipping and burning through the atmosphere as it reenters. Right, so according to an article I read in Slate about this, uh, the capsule will, of course, be way too small to see while it's in orbit. But Elysium has talked about creating an app that will let you track your loved one's remains so you can see where they are in the sky. So, eh, maybe. Then, here's the one you asked about, the Lunar Memorial. This delivers that little gram of your remains, or however much, to the surface of the moon. Pretty cool. All right. Uh, They say it's $9,950 for the first 50 takers, and then it's $11,950 for anybody after that. And then they've got the Milky Way Memorial, which is, uh, I think the price is to be determined there, which would send that little part of your ashes into deep space. It's sort of do-it-yourself. I looked up how it works. <laughs> they mail you a kit. So it's kind of like the, you know, the DNA testing kits or something. But uh, they mail you a kit with a space-grade anodized aluminum alloy receptacle. And then you spoon some of the ashes into the receptacle with a complimentary scoop, and then you send it back, and they take care of the rest. According to their launch schedule on their website, there are a couple of these shooting star package launches lined up for late 2015. I don't know anymore. We'll we'll see if that happens or see how that goes. <laughs> Uh, but this is actually not the only company in the space burial game. People like Timothy Leary and Gene Roddenberry have already had their remains shot into space. Uh, the previous big player in this game was a company called Celestis, and I think they're still around, as far as I can tell, still doing what they do. And they offer packages that, from what I could tell, were a little bit more expensive than the ones by uh, Elysium Space. Well, both are pretty expensive, but uh, but at least with Elysium Space in the picture, it looks like the market is continuing to diversify. I don't know if this will become big business. I, It's hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. To what extent do people really get behind this idea that, I mean, it, it's so out of keeping with the natural process we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's also just cremation plus. Yeah. But it's, it's like cremation plus we're going to also uh, waste some fuel on sending this up into orbit or to the moon. Um, whereas at least for me, I, I find the idea of recycling in the soil far more attractive. But but that's just me. I mean, some people want the more cosmic model. And- well, I can see how the I can see the appeal of the cosmic model, even though I'm not a person who's ever, at least so far in my life, been all that particular about what happens to my body after mm-hmm. I die, as long as it's not something that's grossly environmentally uh, unsound or or involving traditional embalming. I yeah, know. I mean, I'm kind of the same. I mean, ultimately, the burial is about the survivors, you know. Yeah. So it's 
it's kind of up to them and what's going to make them happy. But I can see the appeal of, of the space launch as it kind of plays on the uh, the William Sapphire contingency speech for the loss of the Apollo 11 crew. Have you ever read this? I, I believe I have, but it's been a while. It's very strangely moving. It's very short, and it's also hard to imagine uh, Richard Nixon reading this thing. <laughs> but supposedly, if the crew members of the Apollo 11 were not going to be able to make it back from the moon, this was the speech that was going to be read. And it talks about you know a, a piece of humankind being coming part of the stars for he- forever. Hmm. Um, and it, it's very moving. I mean, that's the thing, right? Any of these the funeral practices we've discussed so far... It's it's like 50% what you're actually doing with the body and 50% uh, sales pitch, right? 50% right. presentation, 50% cosmology. You know, it's 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 how do you describe what's happening? Because on one hand, you could say, oh, well, they threw a dead body on top of a tower and a bunch of vultures ripped it apart. Or you can say the body was uh, was unclean and these uh, the these holy creatures came and dismantled it and made it pure again. You know, it's, yeah. it's all about how you sell it. Right. Well, no matter what, it's going to involve death and decomposition. Yeah, it's there's no just, getting around uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, essentially, there's no getting around the fact that the body will be broken down uh-huh. or preserved forever in some way that's also not all that squeaky and clean. Well, I mean, eventually we get the heat death of the universe, so something's right. going to happen. Now, I'd be remiss if uh, we didn't mention uh, cryopreservation. Uh, this is a this is of course a topic unto its own. I, th- I think there's an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, maybe even stuff from the Science Lab that goes into this, and it's probably a topic that we could revisit on its own episode in the future. And of course, this is the practice where you have a legally dead body that is then uh, frozen, uh, and then sometimes it's just neuropreservation, so it's just the head, a frozen head that's preserved, with the idea here being that you're kind of gambling on the possibility that at some point in the future we'll have the technology to take a frozen legally dead body or a frozen head and bring it back to life or resurrect it in some way, um, heal the problems that are inherent in the body. You imagine uh, it'll probably be Futurama style. Yeah. Futurama, the Futurama model is definitely the one I keep coming back to. And, you know, and it also, there are a lot of factors here, like was, was the body frozen in a way that uh, doesn't uh, destroy tissue? Is it cared for and maintained uh, during this period? These are all pitfalls that, uh, that sort of litter the, the history of uh, cryopreservation uh, thus far. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's again, it's a gamble. Are, is, will these bodies be brought back to life? Will these heads be brought back to life? Maybe not. Uh, it's ultimately not that different from the Egyptian model of mummification, right? Yeah. Where it's all about preparing the body for a journey into a, a distant world and a distant age. Yeah. It's uh, stocking the body up with everything it's about to need. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's an expensive model. All right. So we've discussed the old ways. We've discussed uh, some of the current ways out there, even if some of them are a little bit futuristic. But now let's talk about where we're going. Yeah, so one of the big solutions to all these problems we've been talking about is what's sometimes just called natural burial, just straight-up natural burial or green burial. Uh, and in recent years, you've seen a revival of these types of practices. This is burial of bodies without all the concrete, the steel, the carved tropical wood, the formaldehyde. The philosophy is one of let nature take its course, sort of like the uh, the sky burial model, except it typically does involve interment in the ground. Uh, but there seem to be a lot of benefits of this. So it's getting rid of all these poisonous embalming fluids and, and unnatural metal and concrete substances in the body. 
And it has come along with what are sometimes referred to as green cemeteries, which are places that encourage the green burial practice and and help you make it take place. Uh, In at least one AARP poll, more than 70% of people who were asked about this uh, picked green burial as the most appealing option for their burial, which is kind of weird because you feel like practices haven't really caught up with what people want. Yeah, because there are a number of, I mean, just you're dealing with uh, with varying like local uh, regulations and even more overarching regulations uh, surrounding the burial of the dead that are based on the embalming model, right? Yeah, as you mentioned before, a lot of times when a loved one has died, people aren't aware of what their options really are. Do I have to have a concrete burial vault? Do I have to get it invo- embalmed? You know, uh, does this sealed metal coffin have to explode? And in some places, there there might be, like you said, laws or regulations that say, no, this is where and how you can bury your dead and this is what you have to do. In other cases, there might just be cemeteries that privately enforce their own policies. And, you know, that might be like you can't be buried in our cemetery unless you have a concrete vault or something. Right. But uh, green cemeteries can help make those natural options clear and available to the consumer. And so typically this is just going to be plain burial in a kind of uh, shroud or a biodegradable casket that's, you know, uh, cardboard or wood or something like that, or even just a blanket. Okay. Now tell me about the the pet cemetery with an S option. Well, there you find a place where the ground went sour, uh, possibly due to Wendigo infestation. Okay. And then you bury naturally. The green burial, the, the old way, though disclaimer, sometimes dead is better. Okay. Well, that that's definitely an option uh, for uh, for those Stephen King fans out there, of, of whom I am one. Um, now, if you want a, a different model, uh, and a model that kind of comes back to our early example of the uh, the Irish soldier pulled up by the tree, yeah, you can just straight up become a tree. It, it kind of an extension of the green burial uh, that we've already discussed, an extension of natural burial that is uh, a little more rigorously designed. And in this, we, uh, we're looking at a project that come, that came from Italian designers Anna Citelli and Raul Bretzel. And this is called Capsula Mundi, or World Pods. <laughs> um, and, and this is really elegant. Uh, I, I really like it. Uh, it's still kind of in the design phase, but they're saying that instead of a cemetery, let's have sacred forests. And you create these, these uh, sacred forests by planting a tree atop the burial of a special egg-shaped cornstarch pod. So it's like a cornstarch pod that contains the dead body curled up in a fetal position. And then you just let nature take its course down there. It breaks down, and then the nutrients from that dead body feed the tree that takes life above it. Now, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. I think it would be great to become a tree. I think so, too. And I, I've, I've thought about this before, and I often wonder, though, then that you then put increased... Um, demands on the care of that tree. Like, then what happens if that tree dies? Because we've all, I don't know if we've all, but some of us have planted trees in our backyard before and uh, and watched them die. And that would be extra disheartening if this was, you know, Uncle Uncle Clark's tree. Yeah. And now, oh, Uncle Clark became this horrible dead tree that... Um, or he became one of the talking trees from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so I, I feel like 
I wonder if there's not a, some room for dangerous personification of the tree in these in these examples, huh. as elegant and beautiful as the example is. Oh, but just think what kinds of great Halloween lore this would create. You know, the the forest where all the trees grew out of a corpse. I mean, what a, what a wonderful setting for the yeah. ghost lore of the future. Yeah, I mean, I. You know, there are um, cemeteries out there that, of course, you'll find plenty that are finely manicured and, and, and mowed and then people bring in flowers. But you'll still find other cemeteries where they allow the weeds and the, the wildflowers to grow up all around them. And I think that I tend to find those to be very, uh, uh, very peaceful places. You know, I like the vibe. So ultimately, I like the, the idea of the body breaking down and becoming nature again. Okay, so so that's the natural greenway. Yeah. Um, either just natural burial or maybe burial in a pod that becomes a tree or something like that. We could also look at the sort of uh, the lab model Yes. for the, the green disposal. And one of the ideas that I came across here, which I just thought was amazing, is called Promession. Mm. What is this, Robert? Uh, well, this comes to us from the Swedish company Promesha Organic AB, uh, founded by Suzanne Wigmasek. And uh, this is how it breaks down. First of all, the corpse is frozen to negative 18 degrees Celsius or zero degrees Fahrenheit and then submerged in liquid nitrogen. All right. Then the frozen brittle corpse is uh, gently bombarded with sound waves which break it down into a fine white powder. And I've also read that uh, an adapted muscle stimulation machine is used for this, so I imagine we're talking an ultrasonic stimulator. Uh, still, I think that the Van Damme time cop uh, kick or a grenade launcher could still be an <laughs> option for the shattering of your corpse. Or uh, you could also do the, the Sub-Zero. Yes, yes, a, a good like ninja backhand, a back fist kind of thing. All right, so um, then you have this powder, and the powder is sent through a vacuum chamber that evaporates all the water because uh, the water belongs to the tribe, as we discussed in our, our Dune episodes. Right. Uh, and then the water, and since water is 70% of the body, I mean, it makes sense to remove that uh, and return it to the tribe. Uh, then this powder, this pure powder, um, is taken, and you pick uh, any metal objects out of it, like fillings or whatnot, and dispose of those properly. But then you're just left with this straight-up corpse powder, devoid of water. It's easier to break, break that down in the soil uh, than a corpse. So you just spread it. Bury it however you want to deal with it. It's like perfect, the perfect ashes of a body without having to uh, actually burn it up and engage in that fuel loss. That's great. So freeze you, shatter you, scatter you in a shallow grave. And that sounds kind of beautiful. There's another one that is maybe less beautiful but very cool (laughs) called uh, resomation or resomation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sort of a trade name, I think, for alkaline hydrolysis. Yeah, this is a – it's – often termed it as a bio-cremation. So you, what you're doing is you're using heated water and potassium hydroxide, or lye, to liquefy the body and leave only bones behind. And then you take, then the, once you have the bones, then, hey, you kind of follow the straight-up uh, uh, sky burial model, and you just pulverize those, and then you return the bone fragments to the family. Yeah, so the body goes into this giant steel vessel with water and lye. Uh, it gets heated up. Very hot to around 300 or 350 degrees Fahrenheit under high pressure, so essentially a lye-filled pressure cooker. <laughs> and you get left there for a few hours, and then you melt, and then it's on to the cremulator. With the cremulator, <laughs> that's a real word. It's the, the machine that grinds down the bones to create the powder that you get to take home. I think the cremulator could be the next great um 
wrestling gimmick. If there are any pro wrestlers out there who need a gimmick, go with the cremulator. I like it. But uh, th- this is cited as a greener alternative to burial and cremation because it produces far fewer carbon emissions than cremation and it uses less energy. So if you like the environment and you like melt movies, maybe <laughs> you should see about having yourself melted, uh, though it's not necessarily available everywhere. Uh, people on, in the United States apparently have not always been really keen on the idea of liquid cremation. It is legal in some states in the U.S. According to at least one website, I found it's legal in Georgia, but not according to another one. So I'm not huh. quite sure what the law is on that. In 2011, a funeral director named Jeff Edwards liquefied 19 bodies through alkaline hydrolysis in Ohio before the state officials effectively shut him down by denying him burial permits. Uh, claiming that the practice was not in alignment with state regulations. Uh, Edwards had been referring to the pra- practice by the name aquamation. I'm not sure what that means. Liqu- yeah, you, you need a different term than just corpse liquefaction because that just sounds a bit too, um, you know, robot apocalypse, I guess. Yeah, I guess. So anyway, apparently Catholic organizations have, or some at least, have been uh, fighting the legality of this in Ohio. According to one, the idea of dissolving the body is not showing proper respect. Respect to the body. Hmm. In this, we we see this again and again throughout history. Uh, in Mary Roach's uh, book Stiff, uh, she mentions at one point this idea that well, we could take bodies and use them for fuel, mm-hmm. and that was and, and that was just completely shouted down as disrespectful. But ultimately, we're talking about the processing of a dead body. Yeah, and and sometimes that means just approaching it in a very scientific uh, and um, you know less emotional way. And uh, and when we do that, there's inevitably going to be someone or a group of people or whole organizations that say, "Whoa, slow down here! You're not processing our corpse. Yeah. We're burying them. We are we are we are uh, allowing their passage uh, into the afterlife. We're we're approaching this with with decorum." Well, yeah, a scientific or clinical approach to the disposal of a corpse is often viewed as somehow vaguely sociopathic, mm-hmm. or like you know, you're not showing proper respect to the person. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, you might just not feel that the body represents what the person is. But one example of this is that uh, there was legislation in New York State that was supposed to make alkaline hydrolysis legal there. And it was apparently referred to by detractors as the Hannibal Lecter's Bill, uh, (sighs) apparently a play on the name of uh, Senator Kemp Hannon, who sponsored the bill. Mm. That's. Uh, seems unfair. Yeah, because I think in any of these cases, yes, there's a model of it where, you, where someone could just very coldly uh, dismantle or process a body. But in the same way, someone could very coldly embalm a body. You know, it's just there are ways to to carry out these procedures that uh, that honor the dead. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, alkaline hydrolysis has already been used to uh, get rid of animal bodies and medical cadavers at the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why not as a, as a standard option uh, for uh, for the disposal of the dead? All right, and that brings us to what, Joe? The mushroom death suit. Yes, kind of a superstar of the internet over the past uh, what couple of years, I guess. Uh, because I remember seeing like when the initial stories came out yeah. about the TED Talk, and then oh. eventually the TED Talk came out as well. Yeah, it's a few years old now, so officially it's going to be called the Infinity Burial Suit. But come on, you know, let's dispense with the sanitized language. It's a mushroom death suit. Yes. Uh, so the artist and inventor J. Rim Lee gave a TED Talk in July 2011 to introduce this concept of what she called the Infinity Mushroom. 
and the suit that helps the infinity mushroom eat you. So the infinity mushroom is the idea of a strain of mushroom that's trained to rapidly consume dead human flesh. And Lee claims that she herself has been training Petri dishes of mycological tissue culture, which is fungus, to eat her hair, her fingernails, her dead skin cells. Uh, and this is a specific instance of the concept of decompiculture, which is an idea originating with the entomologist Timothy Miles, in which we essentially grow and cultivate our own decomposers the same way we grow and cultivate our own food crops or our draft animals. Okay. And the suit is simply an organic cotton suit. It, it looks kind of like black pajamas with white veins spreading across the outside of the body. Yeah, it looks vaguely futuristic, kind of Starfleet. Yeah, apparently the white veins were said to uh, uh, represent the mycelium, the sort of roots that the mushrooms put out. Mm -hmm. And this suit has fungal spores embedded. And I believe the idea is that once the perfect strain of fungus has been created for the purpose of eating you, its spores will be embedded in the suit, and then your body goes in the suit, and then they chow down. Uh, according to a 2011 interview with New Scientist, she mentioned that the suit as it was might not be uh, friendly enough to the mushroom spores and talked about, you know, the possibility that she might have to coax the spores to continue eating with a second skin of gelatin inside the suit. I find the aesthetics of this idea oddly compelling, but if this thing ever were made widely available, I wonder how many people would actually buy it and use it. Well, this could be an aspect of the project that is more art than science, right? Because ultimately, sure. the mushroom death suit is less about her saying, hey, this is this thing we should all wear, and more about presenting uh, an extreme but uh, aesthetically pleasing model of uh, the kinds of burial practices we could be moving towards. It's kind of like high fashion, right? Yeah. Nobody... No, nobody looks at that uh, futuristic, crazy, like square dress on the catwalk and says, "Ooh, I'm, I'm going to wear that." And the fashion designer probably doesn't think that either. But it's about presenting this uh, this extreme idea that will then pull us in its direction. Yeah, I can see that. How it's sort of a it's the concept that filters down rather than the ex exact explicit design. And the concept really isn't all that different from the idea of sky burial. Whereas with sky burial, you're, you're talking more about uh, direct access to larger animals scavenging birds. This is providing access to smaller decomposers, the, the fungus, the, the tiny microscopic things that will still eat us the same way the vultures will. I think the problem here is that um, in the sky burial model, the the, the carrion birds have uh, have an elevated status, and there there's a, there's a magic to them. And we need to we need more magic with our mushrooms. We need mushroom gods. We need to worship the mushrooms. Yes, we yes. need we need some shroom based uh, maybe Lovecraftian deities that we have to deal with. Some sort of Mego goddess, or perhaps the the mushroom goddess of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I can't remember her name offhand, but uh, I know she's in the back of the uh, uh, campaign book that I just picked up. Yeah, well, one's always tempted to think that the machine elves are, in fact, mushrooms of some kind. <laughs> uh, in reaction to this mushroom thing, I, I thought some of the comment sections on these articles were sort of weird because people seem surprisingly gung-ho about it or, conversely, 
uh, reacting negatively with what seemed to me patently irrational reasoning with people seeming to think things like the fungal composition would be painful. <laughs> well, it, it comes back to like our the, the irresistible urge to humanize the dead body. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the caskets and about like sealing it off and that being a huge aspect of it. But then it's ultimately like, oh, I feel like I feel like uh, grandpa would like a comfy pillow. I feel like Grandpa would be more comfortable. I would be more comfortable if we just lined the whole thing with pillows. Yeah, wire right. their cushions inside a coffin. Yeah, and then it just it just spirals out of control from there. So, yeah, we can't help but look at the body and think, oh, I, do, I don't want something painful to happen to that body that can no longer feel pain and is no longer a person. But we do it anyway. It's just human nature. I guess it is. All right, so there you have it. Burial, some old options, some current options, some futuristic, near-future options uh, for your consideration. Uh, in the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you find all the podcast episodes. Uh, that's where you find videos, blog posts, and links out to those various social media accounts. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. We're Blow the Mind on both of those. We're also on Tumblr. I believe the handle there is Stuff to Blow Your Mind, one word. And if you want to let us know about the coolest way of disposing of human remains you've ever heard of, or uh, want to let us know how you'd like your remains to be disposed of after your death, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 